You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode, we discuss the recent protest movement in Iran with a special guest, Canadian Marxist humanist, Teresa Henry. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few moments, we'll be discussing the protest movement in Iran with Teresa Henry. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few moments to talk about some current events. Hey, before we jump into our current events segment, we wanted to let you know that you are invited to apply for a study group that Marxist Humanist Initiative is leading. It's a study group on Marxism and freedom from 1776 to, to today, the book by Raya Dunyevskaya. These will be held over Skype, and they will be on some Sundays from 1 to 3 Eastern Standard Time. The next meetings are on February 12th, February 26th, and March 5th. If you're interested in applying to attend, you can write to MHI at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Today is January 30th, and we're going to be talking about the recent events in Memphis, Tennessee, surrounding the police beating and murder of Tyree Nichols. Uh, Last Friday, much-anticipated police body cam footage was released, showing in graphic detail the brutal beating murder by five as a five police officers from memphis's scorpion squad as they're known the five police officers have been charged with murder and uh, the city has announced that they're disbanding this special scorpion squad the big difference here that everybody is uh, pointing to and the attorney for the family said this change is, is a blueprint for the future. What, what, what's different this time is a swift movement by the police instead of stalling and, and, and interminable cover-ups. The cops that did this, they were immediately taken off, charged in a couple of weeks. The, the body cam footage was made public uh, within uh, three weeks. This is a real break with precedent. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that long ago that we the standard procedure was to wait months and months for the district attorney to impanel a grand jury. And then after lots of waiting around, the grand jury would not recommend charges and nothing would really happen. And police officers would even be rehired or moved to a different department somewhere else uh, to continue their uh, crazy. Hopefully this quick decision to charge these five cops with murder and a relatively quick turnaround in getting the video released shows that the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, have changed public opinion enough that there's an expectation for accountability that wasn't there before. It's a little too early to know if this is the case, but it's perhaps promising. Yeah, we, we don't know what they're going to, to try to do, but this has put the lie to all of the excuses that, oh, this takes a long time and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and we can and we have to and so forth and so on. When there's a will, there's a way. I, I, I think you're right that the mobilization around Black Lives Matter, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, a lot of people are, are, are very pissed off. So it looks like there's some con- kind of concessions to that segment of public opinion. Also, what uh, I saw that was very interesting is, and as far as I know, this is unprecedented, the police union in Memphis didn't uh, do the normal police union stuff, basically uh, defending the, the, the murderers or saying, oh, it was a difficult job and, you know, they had to make a decision on the spot. This is what they uh, put out on Facebook. Memphis Police Association would, would again like to extend condolences to the family of Mr. Tyree Nichols. The Memphis Police Association is committed to the administration of justice and never condones the mistreatment of any citizen nor any abuse of power. And the word never and both times say any, that's all in caps. 
that's a, a change. I mean, really, coming from the, the police union, is this going to be a precedent? I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. These, these five manifest police officers were part of something called the Scorpion Unit, which was a special get tough on crime unit, which was only a year or two old that was uh, put in place by the new police chief and touted as this great strategy to deal with rising homicide rates in Memphis and rising crime rates. This sort of almost like utilitarian approach to policing where uh, we, we gloves are off. We kind of let these guys do whatever they want. Maybe they rough people up a little bit. Maybe they're a little too rough. Maybe they're kind of cowboys, but they get the job done and they're going to make everyone safer. So it's okay. When it's time to get serious about crime, can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs kind of logic, right? which is not an uncommon strategy for police departments to have these sort of special units that patrol neighborhoods where there are higher crime rates and basically just harass people, stop and frisk people, pull people over and do a lot of searches, rough people up, intimidate people, and basically treat people's civil liberties as if they're expendable. But all this sort of abuse of power is justified because it's got some greater good that it's serving, which is it's going to make the city safer. And we've seen calls for various types of solutions to the rising uh, murder rates in a lot of cities that, that sometimes move in this direction of bringing like abusive police practices back condoning them and, the, and because it's what has to be done to make the city safer. Um, right now we're seeing it in Philadelphia where I live where we have alarmingly high uh, homicide rates for the past few years and people are talking about bringing back stop and frisk. Philadelphia has one of these like special cowboy units. It's called the South Squad or something. These sort of plainclothes police officers are supposed to be finding illegal guns in South Philly and they, they're basically like off the hook cowboys who do all sorts of questionably legal, questionably moral things in their interest of fighting crime and, and getting illegal guns off the streets. Just two years ago, they ended up shooting a 12-year-old boy in the back uh, and killing him uh, as he was fleeing the cops. So this is kind of what happens when you give a bunch of cops who think they're superheroes like a blank check to go and do whatever they need to do to fight crime. This is the kind of thing that happens. You get these like these kind of violent, ab abusive, reckless, totally out-of-control behavior from police. This is what happens. And I mean, the, the, the question is that line of thinking, is it in fact correct? Do you have to terrorize a community that's oppressed, marginalized, poor? Do you need to do what it takes to, to, to keep them down? There are people say, oh, well, you can build trust with the community, blah, blah, blah. That's the real way. But I, I tend to think that the people who, who think you have to scare the shit out of these people and keep them in submission, I, 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 I think from their vantage point, it, it, it does make a lot of sense. That's been the, the history of, of this country. It's been the, his, you know, the slavery, the, the KKK, uh, everything. As we were, were talking about uh, with uh, Teresa uh, in the main segment for this episode, terrorizing the population has kept the theocracy in power in Iran for, what, 45 years now or so? But the other thing that, that, that's happening, and it's hard to know which way this is going to go, is cops quitting right and left all over the country. And I mean, it might have something to do with everybody quitting because of the pandemic, but you read what the people who report what the cops say, and they're like, well, you know, we were like the good guys, and then the George Floyd and the, the Derek Chauvin, and now we're not the good guys, we're the bad guys, and nobody's here protecting us, we're just doing our jobs. The hell with it, we don't need this. If we're not going to have the chief of police defending us, and if we're going to have like the chief of police and all the, the cops saying, this is not allowed. We, we don't need it. And they're also worried about the very minor challenges, fight back against qualified immunity. We haven't seen much in terms of a change in qualified immunity, which means that basically you can't sue cops in civil court for murdering, beating, and, and, and so forth, because uh, they've, they've got near blanket immunity. Basically, they're not accountable. And, and so even small challenges to qualified immunity are like, well, look, if we're accountable for our actions, then the hell with it. We don't need this. I, I was reading something in the City Journal, which is 
published by uh, the Manhattan Institute, which is this right-wing foundation or whatever, think tank. And the author, Charles Fane Lehman, ends his story as follows. If cops believe that one wrong step could ruin their lives forever, they will stop being cops. That's what many are deciding to do, and the results have already proved deadly, you know, by a lot of cops leaving. Yeah, so if one wrong step could ruin their lives forever, they will stop being cops. So what you need to do is, ah, you know, you only murdered one person. Ah, let's give this guy a second chance. I mean, you know, that's the, the thinking in this country. There's definitely a seem like a work slowdown uh, by police officers in a lot of places, especially where I'm, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. Record number of police officers on like sick leave. The local newspaper did an expose last year that found out that all these cops on sick leave were actually working jobs the whole time, other jobs, and were collecting their paycheck from the city, but were actually like, you know, claiming they were out on disability, but they were like working construction jobs and stuff. There's just a remarkably slow response rate to uh, solving murders in the city. And feels like a, a work slowdown in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. Cops are just kind of having a, a tantrum because people are actually having them, holding them accountable and they're refusing to do the work they're, that they're hired to do. But the problem is that politicians are looking for solutions to problem of violence and they want to do something, especially about gun violence. And there's very little that politicians can do about gun violence without getting guns off the streets. Right. If like everyone in the city owns a gun, there's going to be gun violence. And if you're not legally allowed to like outlaw gun sales, you know, if everyone is legally allowed because the Supreme Court is batshit crazy, you know, if you can't pass gun control laws and everyone has a gun, you really can't do much to end gun violence, uh, you know, except for like propose very long term economic development and education initiatives, all these things would take like generations to like change. People want immediate solutions. So the only really like palpable immediate solution is like, okay, we're going to like empower cops to do Eric Adams style uh, politics. We're going to be tougher on crime, right? So there's like a real opening for politicians to push these sort of tough on crime policing policies, even though so many people are disillusioned with policing in America. There's still this opening for those sort of things to get proposed. And this is what happens when, you know, you, you rely on police to do it the police way. You get these like cowboys run around beating the shit out of people and shooting people in the back and stuff. Yeah. And if they can't do that, who wants to be a cop? Right. That's what the, the the cops are saying through the slowdowns, through the retirements, quitting you know, and all of that. Like if, if, if we can't do it our way, we, we don't want to do it at all. We're not going to be like made accountable for our actions. You know, one wrong step. Things are, are, are very up in the air because, I mean, clearly the, the movement for justice is not ended. There have been demonstrations all throughout the country. We, we did get response from Memphis police and, and the legal system there that's different on the other hand you know you've got this pushback you got the cops quitting and whatnot so the the, the tensions are there they're not going away they're not getting resolved and, and they're heating up the two sides are moving further and further apart and you know they're talking about oh let's pass the george floyd justice and policing act i mean that, that that's dead in the water you don't have 60 votes in the in the senate Okay, and you got the Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, and you got right-wing supermajority on the Supreme Court. So nothing is going to happen, and people have to have their guns because they they have a God-given right to own the libs and revolt against any challenge to white supremacy and so forth. I mean, I, I don't see any anything changing. Just that uh, it looks to me like the contradictions are going to get get deeper. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Teresa Henry about the protest movement in Iran. Today is January 29th of 2023, and we are pleased to welcome to our podcast today, Teresa Henry, to talk about the recent protest movement in Iran. Teresa Henry is a Canadian Marxist humanist. Uh, she has written several contributions for 
Marxist Humanist Initiative's online publication with Sober Senses, uh, two articles on the Iran protests, um, articles about First Nation movements in Canada and, and national liberation movements. Discerning listeners might remember us thanking Teresa for her contributions and research to our recent episode on the concept of national liberation and uh, so the history of the concept in Lenin. Teresa's two articles on Iran, uh, the most recent is from January 18th, and it's called Strikes, Protests, Organizations, Iranian Revolt Deepens Despite Executions. And the earlier one is from October 13th of last year, and it's entitled Women in Iran Lead Mass Demonstrations for Women, Life, Liberty. So, Teresa Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yes, welcome, Teresa. This should be good. Why don't we just start off with the basics? When did this recent wave of protests begin in Iran, and what's it all about? The most recent wave of protests started in September after a young Kurdish woman, Sheena Amini. Her non-Kurdish name is Masa. Her Kurdish name is Sheena. She was killed in custody or died in custody of the morality police after being arrested for having a couple hairs hanging out of her hijab. If you connect the dots, you can easily see that she was killed by the morality police. And the protests began as a response to that. Students, women, youth fled out into the streets protesting the the horrible treatment of women, the terror of the military and police apparatus in the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Republic itself. In the most recent piece you wrote about these protests, you, you wrote maybe 10 days ago, 11 days ago on January 18th, you talked about the current state of the, the movement now, how many months in, four months in? Yeah, so it's been five months or 135 days. Okay. So you, you talk about the current state of the, the movement now. What What's happening now? Because it's now expanded considerably beyond just being just women protesting in the streets like it was in the first few days of the movement. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think it's turned into a, a popular revolution that is drawing in all aspects of Iranian society. The universities, there's something like hundreds of universities have been occupied and by the students and protests at the universities. The workers are going on strike repeatedly, like the oil workers just went on strike again in January. And this is a pretty significant because the oil and gas industry in Iran is is the, the most significant industry. It's the mainstay of the Iranian economy. So the disruptions in oil production have a huge impact on the Islamic Republic. But as the protests grow and more layers of society are drawn into it, the repression has escalated as well. And this is kind of the theme of my my last articles. I started out talking about the horrendous things that the Islamic Republic is doing to crush the dissent. And I wanted to spend most of the article talking about how the this hasn't worked. It had like remarkably people are still flooding out into the streets and claiming that resistance is life, the regime is death, and like the most horrible things you can think about are happening to these people, but they just continue to fight for freedom. So I just looked at a, a report, a daily report that's released by the Human Rights Activists in Iran organization. And as of today, in terms of repression, 527 people have been killed in relation to the protests. 71 of those people killed have been children. 22 people have death sentences, and there's been four executions. Almost 20,000 people have been arrested and 13,000 of those people have received sentences, but still the protests growing and continuing, which I think is phenomenal. This is really amazing. And I have a bunch of follow-up questions I want to ask about a lot of the things you just said. Uh, First, you mentioned this oil worker strike. Often, obviously, strikes revolve around economic demands, but you're talking about it in the context of this protest about uh, women's rights and and uh, people protesting the theocracy in Iran. So is this more of a political strike or is it an economic strike that has some political undertones? What's its relationship to the protest movement? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's both, actually, which is interesting. Like, there is economic strikes. So, like, the last strike has to do largely with wages, money wages, but also access to other benefits and stuff like that. So that you could obviously the bread and butter kind of economic demands. But 
even those economic protests seem to have a self-consciousness that they're part of a bigger mass movement and the workers have gone on strike or done job actions directly related to the movement. So when the two young men were executed by the regime for protesting, the workers went out on strike. The workers have come out in solidarity against escalating repression. A lot of the activity is in the Kurdish region, so the workers come out on strike against the repression of the Kurdish national minorities, etc. Yeah, in your in your your most recent article, Teresa, uh, you you do quote explicit statements of solidarity of the oil workers with the broader movement against the regime. The organizing council of the oil contract workers called on all workers to strike and protest against the executions and arrests by the Islamic regime. And the Coordinating Council of Cultural Trade Union Organizations voiced support of the three-day strikes and protests that took place in early December. The strike was in opposition to the regime, okay? So it wasn't just, just, just an economic strike. And, you know, the earlier strikes, I think even at, at the start of January, were of the oil contract workers, you know, not regular employees, but temporary workers. But mo- mo- more recently, if I'm not mistaken, it's the regularly employed oil workers who've, who've gone out on strike. Can you fill us in any more about that, maybe a broadening of, of the uh, activity among the oil workers? Sure, yeah. So a lot of the information that I get about the workers is from this organization called Free Them Now, which is an international organization of trade unionists who are trying to support jailed and striking workers in Iran. I think you're correct that it is the permanent workers that are on strike, at least in the January 17th strike. Yeah, I mean, I thought that's significant because oftentimes you do have divisions among the workforce between the the people with the regular jobs and the people who are just there temporarily and they might not even know each other so well. Oftentimes you've got ethnic or religious, uh, you know, cultural divisions. So I thought it was uh, significant that the activity has moved from the contract workers to to regularly employed uh, workers. So it's kind of amazing, you know, five months in and not only is the activity continuing, but it it seems to be catching fire and and moving to uh, people who haven't been uh, as involved before. Yeah, I think that's significant. I think one real significance of the oil strikes too is, and you started to gesture at it, is the, I wrote in my article, the strikes speak to both the general discontent against the government and to solidarity across ethnic and cultural divides. So the workers going on strike said um, they were mobilizing against the government's lack of response to the problems facing the working class but also the plight of our innocent colleagues and other people in Kurdistan, Baluchistan, and Aysa, Aysa, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and other bloodstained cities. So the workers are really, I just, you can feel from what the, from their declarations that they see themselves as part of a bigger struggle that is like bigger than the economic struggle, bigger than the divisions on the shop floor, bigger than even the ethnic divisions, and bigger than the gendered divisions too, because you have these male-dominated industries that are going out in in explicit solidarity with a woman's revolution that, um, I can't remember what article it was, but there was one commentator saying that what she thought was so remarkable about this revolution is that men are willing to die for women's freedom. And I I think that these uh, transcendence of like uh, animosity between ethnic minorities, different religious strains and men and women is is very, very wonderful. It's inspiring. The death toll is staggering for a, a protest movement that's only five months old. I mean, that's like over 100 people a month being killed by the regime, and then all the people are being locked up, and now we have people being executed. And the executions are, the charges are just for protesting? Is that a offense you can be executed for, or are they being uh, accused of something else? Yeah, some of the people that are, are being arrested are being arrested, like treason charges stuff like that there's this charge which which is a form of treason that the the regime has it's like going against god like to go against the government is like to go against the law of god 
know the exact wording of it, but this is the this is the justification for the executions: is the that these protesters are um, infidels. I guess like uh, they're out of line. They're they're opposing God's will. For people to still be in the streets calling for the end of the, the theocracy. They're taking incredible risks, and and they're obviously very aware of the danger of continuing to protest. That doesn't always happen in uh, authoritarian regimes. A lot of times, obviously, people are too scared to take those kind of risks. So, like, what is different now in Iran that people have the courage to go out in the streets despite all the, the risk? Yeah, that was something I was thinking about, too, when I was writing the last article that looks a lot at the repression and then how it hasn't stopped the movement from our perspective in the west it's like yeah what is what is keeping these people going and what i've read and i think what is summed up in the slogan that you see on posters and being chanted resistance is life is that the life underneath the islamic republic the islamic regime is worse than than death like to to fight for to die and have a chance at life is better than to wither away under the system. Like I remember reading this one article in September when all this started, it was in the New York times, which I haven't been following closely since they (laughs) were blasted for that horrible printing the PR scandal of the regime saying the morality police was abolished. I haven't really been following New York times since then, but in one of the earlier pieces they released in September, they were interviewing people in Iran who said they had nothing to look forward to in life. And that like that young people's goals was just to get out of the country is quick as possible because there was no future there there was nothing you could do that people just couldn't even imagine but growing up there so i don't know for sure because i'm not there but these are the these are the suggestions that i've read from watching the instagram of activists and reading the news articles that are coming out and stuff is that people think that the struggle for life is and the risks involved in it are better than doing nothing because the regime is just so degrading for human life in Iran. You know, I'm curious about the relationship of this current uprising to the other recent protest movements in Iran. Back in like 2017, 2018, there was a a big protest uh, movement that got a lot of attention. And then there was another one in 2019 and 20, a wave of protests that I think was related to a spike in oil prices. There were, that was when there was like a big in, uh, shutdown of the internet in Iran that made a lot of news here in the States. And I think both times those movements were met with a lot of repression. You know, like, what's the relation? Is this like a, um, a, a third installation of, of the same movement or is it qualitatively different this time? Yeah. I have to admit, I, I don't have a super deep or detailed understanding of the the past couple waves of protests. I don't have the best answer to your question, just because I don't have, I, I feel hesitant to, to say much about the movements I don't know that much about. But what it does feel like a continuation of, for sure, is the 1906 to 1911 revolutions and the 1979 revolution. It feels qualitatively the same as those revolutions, like uh, down to the groups who are who are leading it, um, the, the groups that were su- suppressed by the Islamic Revolutionary Party after ousting the Shah. And so we we have this this slogan on the on the left, Rosa Luxemburg, that uh, the 1905 Russian Revolution was not the final act in a series of bourgeois revolutions, but was the beginning of a, a new series of proletarian revolutions. And I kind of see this revolution as like picking up where the 1979 revolution left off. So the the left and the Islamic Revolutionary Party were both against the Shah. They removed the Shah and then the Islamic Revolutionary Party turned to crush the left and the masses. And now we're seeing those masses that were put down rising up against the Islamic Republic, which was the institutionalization of the counter-revolution in 1979. So I kind of evaded your question about the the last couple waves of protests, but I do see a, a striking similarity with 1979, down to women leading it, the, the forms of organization, but also just this kind of like, it's almost like time folded back and the masses are starting up where they left off in 1979. And is this just like a, a hunch on your part, or are people making reference to 79 and the unfinished tasks of, of the revolution? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked because um, the most recent statements that I've read by organizations, so this women's organization, Voice of the Balak Women, Women of Kurdistan, this new, I think it sounds like a youth organization, the, the militants of Central Khorasan, um, are explicitly making connections with the 1979 revolution. The Women of Kurdistan mentions that uh, in 1979, the women chanted, at the dawn of freedom, women's rights are still being denied. And I, that's something that Rhea Donievskaya picks up on in her articles, writing about the 1979 revolution as well, that in the so-called dawn of freedom, women are still second-class citizens. And so the Women of Kurdistan organization is definitely seeing that historical continuity and picking up from there. But also the more, um, they see more ex explicitly Marxist organizations, like the, the youth committees and councils, Revolutionary Youth of Marivan, Revolutionary Youth of Sanandaj. These groups explicitly look at the spontaneous form of organization, the Shora or the council, and are calling for the, the establishment of these and have um, spoken of their, their tendency as council communist. So I didn't know until these most recent statements were published. It was kind of a hunch where I was like, oh, look at all of these historical continuities. But yes, it seems like the women and youth organizations are looking at the 1979 revolution and picking up from there, learning from history. Another interesting thing, historical continuity that actually, Andrew, you mentioned before is the, the formation of these sabotage groups in Iran that, that are based off of the anti-fascist Churchill clubs. Yeah, aside from the, the continuities to the 1979 revolution, I thought it was interesting that you picked up on this continuity as well, because it's kind of funny. Or, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you wouldn't assume that this would be a thing that people are looking back on now. But the in World War II, there was a Danish youth clubs, student clubs that um, engaged in acts of sabotage against the Nazis. And they were called the Churchill Clubs. So it was like this kind of youth, like clandestine youth wing of the Danish resistance. But I guess some of the youth in Iran have uh, found out about the Churchill clubs and started their own sabotage groups, which is kind of cool. But they explicitly referenced the Churchill clubs? Yeah, they do. There was actually one Churchill club. Ah. It was eight teenagers in, in, in Denmark in, I think, 1941 or something, and they were arrested after several months. I don't know how tied in they were with anything else, but they were like... What's what's going on? Nobody else is doing anything. We, we got to do something. That's a very obscure historical reference point to be picked up. <laughs> Can I say something historically about this? The, the reference to at the dawn of freedom, you know, women still have no freedom. At the time, 1979, this was, I think, hugely important because these. Women feminists who were part of the revolution were not just saying we still haven't gotten our freedom, but they were explicitly warning everybody about the Islamic fundamentalists and Khomeini and all of that. And if I recall correctly, this slogan arose over Khomeini's attempt to make the women hide behind veils once again. And at the time, a lot of the movement in Iran was not clear that Khomeini had to be opposed. You know, so you had like the Tuda, basically the Stalinists, you know, sucking up, trying to make common cause with Khomeini, and you had a lot of lack of clarity among Trotskyists about the role of clerics in, 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 in all of this. And the, the cutting edge were these women, were these feminists who said women's freedom is the measure of the freedom of everybody. I mean, especially in a place like Iran, which is, you know, so historically misogynistic. And that was a beacon, that was an alternative road that had it been followed soon enough could have made history go a different way. And unfortunately, what they were saying was not heeded. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So one of the things you talk about in your paper is a, a coalition of opposition leaders in exile. And you talk about what the relationship of that group is to the movement uh, on, in the ground in, in Iran. Can you to g- give an overview for our listeners of what that's all about? Yeah. So in, in the new year, this kind of famous celebrity status exiled Iranian people formed together uh, with Risa Pahlavi, the son of the sh- the Shah. So there's this coming together of like liberal, progressive, human rights defenders and monarchists. And the left groups in Iran that I'm reading are referring to this opposition as the right wing opposition to the Islamic Republic. They're referring to the, the coalition. Yeah. So I've been referring to it as a coalition of opposition leaders in exile because when I think about right wing, I think about monarchists, but this coalition isn't just monarchists, it's monarchists and liberal progressives. But anyway, that's seen by various left groups in Iran as just the right wing opposition to the Islamic Republic, whereas the mass movement is the left opposition. And the formation of this coalition for was a bit murky at, for, at the beginning of January. It was like, okay, so there's all of these people in the diaspora that have come together to oppose the regime, all these people from different political tendencies and countries. Okay, but what made it feel substantive, I guess, is that now there's this kind of campaign, I guess, to on, on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, people are calling it giving the power of attorney to the Shah's son, to the crown prince, um, to be like a interim representative of the people to carry or steward the revolution, the overthrow of the Islamic Republic into a transition and then a free referendum of what the 
what the people want to do. And so you have people defending this, defending this development, that there should there should be a representative of the mass movement. This coalition is properly suited to be that representative because they're looking for a secular democratic society. I don't think so. I, I disagree. And I guess let's maybe get into that <laughs> for a bit. Like what are what the problems with bestowing representative power onto this coalition in exile is before you do that can i get some clarity about the term right-wing opposition are the people who are criticizing this coalition in exile saying that the Pahlavi group i'll just call them that. i don't know what to call them they are to the right of the islamic republic is that what right-wing means or are they saying there is a separate tendency in opposition we're one and they're another one but they are right wing in some way or are they saying we're all part of this opposition and we're the left wing of it and they're the right wing of it so i can think of three possibilities what what do you think they're they're they're, they're indicating by calling it the right wing opposition right yeah i don't think that they're insinuating that it's to the right of the islamic republic i from what i'm reading it feels like it's on a, a bit of a, a a splitting point so it's it's not clear to me yet if people are saying we're the left-wing opposition we're autonomous from this right-wing opposition or if they're saying this is a right-wing current in the united opposition certainly the Pahlavi group is saying that there's one opposition and they are not <laughs> calling themselves the right wing of it he's calling for a unification of left right and center he, his, he says his goal is to unite the left right and center to quote bring our country to a point where the Iranian people in a free and fair election can determine their own future in terms of self-determination end quote so the way he's talking about it is that there's one movement and it could be more formally united under, of course, his <laughs> his and his coalition's leadership. The masses in Iran, I think, are saying more so that this current is forming as an independent or they're, they're looking to separate themselves from this right-wing opposition and not unify with it. Because then in the statement released by the militants of Central Khorasan, it was released on January 19th, they open their statement by saying, the formation of cross-class coalitions is inevitable in a class-divided society, and their nature tends to reflect the relations between clashes. We are not afraid of any coalition or formation, but only criticize them. They must state what they want. So what I get from this is that they're being like this coalition, this right wing opposition is not part of our movement. But that right wing opposition is saying, hey, look, we're all movement. Let's all unite, etc. Thank you. I have one more question. Does Reza Pahlavi have designs on retaking the throne? In other words, turning Iran, you know, back into a, a monarchy again? He says he doesn't. He says he's pro-democracy. He's pro-secular. He wants everyone to unite around pro-democracy and secular reorganization of society. He says he wants a, a free referendum. He wants fair and free elections, etc. So, okay, if we take him at face value, no, he doesn't want to retake the throne. But also, how do we know? How do we know that? How does he know that? How does he know that he won't be moved by the monarchist faction to do so? He, he admits he has no mass base of people in Iran itself. So I, I feel like it's dubious to trust him, but it's also I feel like maybe not the central point here of whether whether he has intentions to retake the crown or not. I think either way, this coalition has departed from the demands of the mass movement and has betrayed the mass movement. So whatever plans they have, it's not the same plans that the women and the workers and the youth have on the streets. Yeah, you mentioned in your article that this right coalition, right opposition is out of touch with some of the main demands, main currents of the Iranian opposition on the ground in Iran. Can you um, explain that a little bit to us. Yeah, for sure. So when this hashtag battle began it, on the 20th of January, there's the pro power of attorney, the anti power of attorney. There's a petition for the power of attorney that has hundreds of thousands of signatures. I don't know what the significance that is. 
But obviously, this debate on the internet represents a larger tendency battle within the movement. And like I said, these grassroots organizations like the Voice of Balak Women, Women of Kurdistan, Militants of Central Khorasan, have released statements opposing Pahlavi and the coalition leaders. Their statements make clear what their differences are. Their slogans are even clearer. They're saying, down with the oppressor, whether it be king or a supreme leader, no to the backwardsness of the sheik and the king. And in the in the Voice of Balak Women statement particularly, they talk about how the monarchists and the Pahlavi group are acting like the oppression of national minorities in Iran started with the Islamic Republic, and that's just not true. And that they're doing this to cover up the crimes of of the Pahlavi dynasty that ruled Iran before the Islamic Republic that also oppressed national minorities. So they're, they're saying it's not enough to overthrow the supreme leader and install a king to go back to the Shah. We have to get rid of both because our oppression as women, our oppression as national minorities is tied to both systems of government. And furthermore, all of these groups say that the philosophy and slogan of women, life, freedom or women, life, liberty is a guard against seizure, co-optation and betrayal of the revolution. And this is why I think it's so significant that the Pahlavi group didn't include this demand in their first public statement. Like it's kind of baffling, like even if they were just shallow opportunists, you think they would include the central demand of the mass movement. But it, it seems to me that that the fact that they didn't is that it's it's not because they're they're not just shallow opportunists who are going to jump on the bandwagon. They have a totally different vision of their alternative in Iran. So instead of saying women, life, freedom, they said that they are unified against the Islamic Republic for the creation of a secular democracy, the restoration of human dignity and equality among citizens of Iran, regardless of their gender, ethnicity and beliefs. In other words, unity and diversity and the need to end various forms of discrimination. But this makes me think about something that Ray Dunayevskaya said in her 1979 article that was called Iran, Unfoldment of and Contradictions in Revolution. She said that in a context of revolution where women play no small part, those who try to, quote, subordinate women's struggles as a mere part of the whole, as if the whole can be without parts, play into the hands of the reactionaries, end quote. And so this is what I think is exactly happening with the exiled opposition. I think this is what they're doing. They're playing into the hands of the reactionaries because instead of embracing the women life freedom slogan, they've replaced it with an alternative watered down vision that doesn't focus on the subjects of the revolution, the subjects of the mass movement, the like integral force of it, which is women. And they're kind of just like, oh, yeah, equality. Freedom. They take the concrete historical specificity out of the mass movement and they they blow it up into these abstractions. And I, I think these abstractions is what they want to replace the actual vision of freedom with that the Iranian masses have. Yeah, we see similar things, uh, you know, in, in the United States. Maybe they, they're not as momentous, but, you know, when people come out with colorblind stuff, and gender-neutral stuff, and yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious about how widespread this protest sentiment is in the country. You know, how, how, how much popular support is there for the, the theocracy, for these like super reactionary politics, and how much support is there for this protest movement? Is the country, is it sort of a rural-urban split? Is it a young-old split? Are the religious conservatives in the minority, but they just happen to have an iron grip on power? How is public opinion distributed amongst the populace? Yeah, it's it's hard to tell because obviously you can't trust anything that the news <laughs> agencies regime have. But also it's hard to trust a lot of the opposition news as well because they have their own interests. For example, I, I follow Iran International, which I think is a, is a monarchist opposition. And so they support some of the liberal progressive. They publish all, all of their stories about the youth groups in Iran that are not explicitly socialist. 
and they publicize the liberal opposition, but also speak glowingly and supportively about uh, the crown prince. So I don't know what exactly what the the public reception of it is in the Kurdish region and and in reading this statement by the voice of Balak women, they're saying that there is a, a kind of dominant theme in those regions of resistance to the Islamic Republic and even the religious communities. Uh, like there's this one mosque in the area that this organization is from the, the Maki Mosque, whose cleric is against Omeni. So it's not totally like a secular religious split. The uh, average age of people arrested in the movement is 26. So that's that's actually gone up. The last time I checked it, I think it was like much lower, like 15, 15 years old or something like that. So 26, but that's still very young. That's still youth or the but that's just statistics off of who's been murdered by the regime. And then finally, I was honestly surprised to see these numbers, but Reuters news agency said that there's currently 90,000 people active in the protests. That seems low to me in a country with 87 million people, but that's what they're saying. In terms of uh, within Iran, nationwide coordination of some of these struggles that have been kind of cropping up, you know, independently. Uh, are you seeing uh, any moves uh, toward that kind of thing? Yeah, so it seems like the youth groups that have formed the grassroots organizations have formed, they say in their form, their form, uh, their foundational statements that, that they have formed in part to coordinate protest activity across the country. At the beginning of the movement, there was kind of just like protests happening every day. These groups are started saying pretty early on, hey, no, 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 let's not just go out every day. Let's plan to go out together. And then it changed to Saturdays. And now in um, Baluchistan, the Fridays are the, the protest days. There is that sense of coordination. And then the workers, according to Free Them Now, are attempting to put the pieces in place for more nationally coordinated strikes. The problem that Free Them Now speaks about is that the strikes so far have been rotating strikes. So not everybody out goes out at once, not every industry all at the same time. And they have to rotate like this because the lack of trade unions and political organizations and civil organizations makes it hard to have enough money to sustain a general strike. So when you go out on strike, you're going out on your dime and there's no strike fund. And so you can go out for two or three days and then you go back in and someone else goes out. But there has been attempts of nationally coordinated protest actions amongst the youth and students and the professors that are supporting the students. I don't think that there's been nationally coordinated strikes because it's hard to go out on strike for a protracted amount of time. But the January 19th news release by Freedom Now states that, quote, protests in the Iran oil industry are widespread and successive protests by official oil workers directly affect the oil industry and are an important, plat important platform for organizing nationwide protests in oil. So that seems to be a conscious goal, but it has not happened yet in terms of workers' activity. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I don't think anything precludes rolling general strike. I've never, I've never heard of one, but uh, it was the first time for everything. For closing, I want to go back very briefly to the significance of this coalition forming to, in a line, say that, like, I think what this means is that the left-wing opposition in Iran is no longer just fighting against the Islamic Republic. They're also fighting against this right-wing opposition. So the complexity and contradictions in the movement have compounded. But I, I do want to say that my worry <laughs> about the formation of this coalition is not that the Iranian masses aren't conscious of what's happening or wanting or willing or able to fight it. They are, and they've already started. My worry is that just like in 1979, the Western left is going to support this halfway measure, like just the way that the, the left supported the Islamic 
revolutionary party because of its so-called anti-imperialism, like it being against America was good enough. No one seemed to, yeah, I mean, I wasn't around, so I shouldn't make statements like that. But but there, but people were saying this is an anti-imperialist party and government, yet they refused to rename the Persian Gulf. They are carrying out military initiatives in the Middle East. They're obviously an imperialist regime, but they're anti-American. So that's that's good enough. And I, I worry that something similar is going to happen and uh, where people will be like, OK, well, the crown prince isn't isn't the guy we would love to have, but he's the guy we do have. And then so we support this this betrayal of the revolution. And I think it's the duty of <laughs> Marxist humanists to to oppose this conciliationism and to say no, like any step away from the masses is the wrong step. That this idea that we should just settle for the guy that's there rather than believe in the masses is a bunch of crap. It's just a we like the if anyone is able to carry through the revolution, it is the women and the workers and the youth that are participating in it, not some not no one else. And I, I, I feel like we have to be firm about that because I, I do anticipate seeing more groups and people signing on to support this reformist opposition. I think it's kind of hard uh, to imagine that the so-called anti-imperialist left, which is, you know, as you said, just anti-American, I find it hard to think that they would line up behind Reza Pahlavi. But others becoming worrisome about this is which way are the liberals going to go? And the fact that he has uh, with him, you said, human rights groups and, and, and all kinds of people like that, big movers and shakers. They could betray the masses very easily. So I'm speaking not only of the the Iranians or Iranians in exile among them, but in in the U.S. So being being aware of the contradictory tendencies in in, in a movement like this is like it's definitely something we need to do. Let me just ask one final question. At the end of your article, you addressed this issue of predictions about whether the, the regime, the Islamic Republic, is close to collapse uh, or not. And that's like what everybody wants to know. Everybody always wants to know the future. And, you know, nobody can know the future, but everybody still wants to know it. Maybe you could uh, offer some of your thoughts on, on that kind of an issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you see in the the classic vanguardist thing is, oh, it's not going to work because there's no party formation. Um, I'm sure some people are saying that. I don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. But what this coalition is saying, this is the year of unity and victory. Um, and then you have this other so- sociologist saying, oh, no, the fundamental pillars of an authoritarian regime haven't fallen down. So the regime is not close to collapse. I'm reading this stuff and I just, I just feel like this is not what theoreticians or intellectuals or anyone who is thinking and writing about social movements should be doing we shouldn't be <laughs> trying to predict what we can what we can never know we should be trying to understand exactly what is happening so we have the most well, sober analysis of the situation and to start making predictions is to break with that sober analysis and it's just you can't know, so you're lying to people. If you you tell people, trust me, I I know what's going to happen. No, you don't. You can't. And it's so. I feel like it's it takes on a kind of moral quality in the sense that you're deluding people. But also, there's philosophical and methodological problems with this too, because history is not something that's has has a predestined goal that we can, if we do the right sort of analysis and right kind of scientific experiments, we can see into the future. Like history un- unravels <laughs> based on the activity of real living human beings. I think it's a distraction. I think it's a bunch of noise to make predictions and it's what people want. People want to make a final judgment on it because then they can say, oh yeah, I'm with the winners. <laughs> I'm not with the losers, etc. The the militants of Central Khorasan said, who awaits a definitive and immediate outcome might cease pursuing and continuing the revolutionary movement. They might get disappointed or even disappointment to the whole society. So I think this is the stakes of making these predictions or wanting a final judgment or, as they say, a definitive or immediate outcome is that you can throw up the towel. Like if you say, oh, the Islamic Republic is not near collapse, then what the hell's the point of anything? We should all just go home. It's never going to work. But if you say that this is the year of unity and victory and nothing can stand in our way, which they didn't go so far as to say that. But, you know, if you were to 
this is the year of unity and victory. Well, well, that doesn't take seriously how monumental the task of overthrowing a government is, especially when it's this giant military apparatus and police system that is so far showing loyalty to the regime and unarmed protesters in the street. Like, I just think that it's on one hand, if we try to make predictions, oh, it's not revolutionary enough, oh, it's not good enough, it's not going to work, then we don't support the mass movement. But on the other hand, if we say it's a surefire win, there's nothing to worry about, then we're not taking the contradictions into account, we're not giving a sober assessment of reality. We, we could get proved wrong, and when you're proved wrong in a revolution, the stakes are not just theoretical and methodological errors, scholarly errors, they're people's lives. I think that's why it's so important to not make predictions. Teresa Henry, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a great conversation. Yes, thanks so much, Teresa. I agree. It's been really good, extremely informative, and I just wish we knew more. I'm sure you, you know, you wish you you knew more, but uh, given the the, the language problems, uh, I'm, I'm impressed by how well you are keeping up with events. Thanks for having me on. It was it's great. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. <laughs>